Hello, I'm Harriet Smith and welcome back to Dietitian Cafe, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan, who is a nutritional scientist and registered dietitian. She specializes in public health communications and EFSA health and nutrition claims. We'll be discussing her roles within the food industry, as well as the do's and don'ts for dietitians working with brands. Hello, Catherine. Hello, Harriet. Thank you for joining me today. And instead of me introducing you, I'm going to put the spotlight on yourself and ask you to um, briefly introduce yourself and your professional background. Okay, Harriet. Um, well, I'm Catherine and I'm Irish. So I did all my training in Dublin. So I studied for a degree in human nutrition and a diploma in dietetic, dietetics many, many moons ago. And I also then obtained a PhD from Trinity College Dublin in clinical medicine. Um, I've worked in academia and the food industry for about 25 years now, and currently I'm working as a consultant. Brilliant. So um, it's a hot topic at the moment, health and nutrition claims. Obviously, this is one of your your big areas of expertise, Catherine. Um, Just before we we come on to discussing that, um, we've had a few questions from our listeners, especially um, a, a dietitian who was interested in hearing more about your role as a nutritional scientist at Kellogg's. Can you tell us a little bit about what that role involved and perhaps what a typical day looked like for you? Yes, um, working in-house as a nutritionist is is a really busy job. And um, when I finished university and I from university, I went to Italy and I did a postdoc. Um, I never expected to work in the food industry. I always expected to work in research, um, but funding went askew and I had no job. Um, and so I needed needed a job and I ended up working for Kellogg's in Manchester. Um, so Kellogg's is a company that's very much founded on nutrition. So from somebody, for somebody with nutrition background, it's a dream job particularly 20 odd years ago, because it was very much a scientific role. Um, so as I say, it's, it's an international company. It's all about breakfast cereals. It's very much founded on nutrition. So a typical day would not be a typical day. It's, it's not a solo job. You work very much part of teams. So um, because nutrition was very much the core of the business, um, you know, you would work with manufacturing, maybe on fortification, what should go into the product. Um, you might talk about allergens, for example, like peanut allergy, allergies, what the, you know, the factory lines should look like because of that. You'd also work with the sales force because it would all, you know, you'd be there to really help the sales force understand nutrition and how to promote the products they're selling um, from a nutrition point of view. Um, other parts of your day may be just sitting down with marketing and developing claims or consumer insights um, and trying to understand how you can talk about the benefits of the products and how you can understand your consumers better. Um, and nutrition marketing is very much a creative um, sort of role. So I would work a lot with advertising agencies and PR agencies. But interestingly, and luckily for me, there was very much a heavy scientific role um, in the job I did. I started out looking after you know, the nutrition science program for Kellogg's, particularly in Ireland and the UK. So worked with various universities and institutes, um, helping to support PhD programs in areas of interest for the company, like things like homocysteine and folic acid, because it's a company that fortifies the product, or gut health, um, or even breakfast research. Um, so I, I was very much involved in scientific research, you know, and actively I published a lot while I worked as in, in Kellogg's. I worked um, in the UK and Irish markets, but then I worked a few years setting up nutrition for the Middle East, which was really exciting. So I, I traveled an awful lot to the Arab Middle East, and I also worked in 
Greece and Cyprus. And that was all about sort of promoting nutrition as a science in sort of new, what we call new developing markets. Um, so again, very, very busy job, traveling a lot, very much having to keep up to date with the science, but also being able to communicate science into credible kind of consumer interesting um, messages that might get people to eat a brand at the end of the day. So if you work for a company like Kellogg's, you have a, a kind of a mix of a job in, in terms of it being quite very commercial at the end of the day, but you may be just very scientific role, but it can be a very academic role. So for me, that was a good mix. Yeah, it sounds incredibly interesting. And like you said, very broad. And I'm wondering what skill sets do you think a dietitian brings to working in the food industry? Well, I think they bring an awful lot of um, skill sets because, I mean, at the end of the day, a food company wants a dietitian or nutrition expert for their expertise. They want their academic expertise um, because there's no point in um, getting a nutrition or nutritionist or a dietitian to work for a food company if that's not what you're looking for. I mean, other skills which dietitians particularly bring to the role are communication skills because, of course, that's very much part of the training is, is how do you um, translate science into sort of easy to understand messages for, for patients when you're working in a clinical setting. So, you know, dietitians, they have the wealth of the science behind them. They have the understanding of nutrition and health, but they also have the communication skills. So it makes them very, very employable um, and desirable for the food industry. Absolutely. Um, those skills are very much cross-transferable, as you mentioned. We had another question from a listener. They're wondering what sorts of training or experience is required to work as a dietitian or nutritionist in the food industry. For example, do you need to have uh, done a PhD or done research in a specific area, in your opinion? I don't know. I think it's, it's so broad, the food industry and, and the sort of jobs that dietitians can do in it. I mean, for some dietitians, I remember many, many years ago, they would tend to go into kind of clinical companies. So there were very much clinical dietitians being employed. And maybe their job was sort of a sales force going out talking to hospitals. Um, other jobs would be very much more kind of branded consumer um, companies. And so the skill sets there would be against the science and the ability to translate the science into, into communications and talking to consumers and talking to maybe to health professionals. Um, so dietitians coming in, they can be very fresh coming in. It's, I suppose it's difficult to get the first job, but once you get in, you, 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 you train yourself on the job. You kind of are trained. I don't think companies want you to be a marketeer necessarily, unless you're coming in as a nutrition marketeer. So that might be a job that you would develop into or else maybe do a post-grad in marketing. Um, you know, it'd be no harm to have a post-grad in master's or a PhD. But I think it kind of comes down to the individual, you know, what sort of character they are. And, they, you know, I think food industry is like creative thinkers. So I think the thing is just to get your, your leg in um, but very much, if you're a good communicator, if you've got writing skills, that really helps. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Be, I think that's really useful information because we don't often hear about dietitians who are perhaps working in, in the food industry. Um, on that note, there has been a bit of debate recently as to whether healthcare professionals, including dietitians, should work with food brands. Just wondering what your thoughts are on this, Catherine. Yes, I think they should work with food brands. They're the experts. Um, they understand food and nutrition. They understand um, what is a healthy diet. And at the end of the day, consumers need to be protected and they need to be given messages and they need to have you know, information given to them that's not misleading, that's truthful. And that can help them ultimately decide whether they want to choose healthy foods or not or a healthy diet at the end of the day. Now, that leads us nicely on to... Um 
EFSA health and nutrition claims, which are designed to not mislead the consumer, like you said. Can you explain what EFSA health and nutrition claims are, firstly? Okay, so I'm going to give you a bit of a history. In 2006, the EU adopted regulations on the use of what we call nutrition and health claims for drinks and food sold in the EU to ensure that any claims made on a food or a drink are clear, accurate, and based on evidence that's accepted by the whole scientific community. Um, So the aim of EFSA was to enhance the the consumer's ability to make informed and meaningful choices. So this is legislation, European legislation, and it basically dictates or legislates for two types of claims that food companies can make on their products. There's what we call the nutrition claim, which is basically um, any suggestion that a food has a beneficial nutrition property. So for example, no added salt, or um, low in fat, that's a nutrition claim. Then there's what we call a health claim, which is any statement that health benefits can result from consuming a given food. So when we're talking about a health claim, an example would be this brand, this yogurt is a source of vitamin A, which can help reinforce the body's natural defenses. So that would be what's called a health claim. Um, And under EFSA, which is called the European Food Safety Authority, the EU has established criteria for making nutrition claims. There's a definition of what a nutrition claim is. So, for example, to make a low-fat claim, the product needs to be 3% of fat or less. Um, Then we have what's called an EU register of nutrition and health claims. And this is a list of approved health claims that you can make. Any brand can make it if your brand or your food meets that criteria, which is set down in the legislation. So this has all been put together to basically... Um, protect the consumer so the consumer's not being misled with wild claims on the the food that they're buying. Okay, so we've talked a lot about EFSA, but I'm presuming now that we've left the EU due to Brexit, perhaps the EFSA legislation may have changed a bit. Could you explain that? Yes. So this is, um, so as of 31st of December last year, just a couple, a month and a half ago, we left um, Europe. So we no longer... Any food that's been sold in the UK is not necessarily under the guidance of EFSA. But basically what's happened is all the health and nutrition claims that have been approved for use by EFSA up to the date of the 31st of December have now automatically been adopted into our UK law. So any claim currently in EFSA has now been transferred to be legal in the UK. Um, Any claims after the 1st of January that are accepted by EFSA won't automatically go into the UK legislation and any claim that's approved by the UK won't automatically go into the EU legislation. So instead of if for any foods that are being marketed in the UK, we don't talk about EFSA anymore. We talk about the UK HCNN and this is the UK Health and Nutrition Claims Committee. And so this is the new committee that's going to manage new claim applications submitted for approval. So that's our are EFSA now, it's the UK HCNN. And then in terms of, instead of having the EU Health and Nutrition Claim Register, we now have what's called the GB or the Great Britain Nutrition and Health Claim Register. Now what's interesting is we have this new register, um, but it's only for GB, (laughs) it's only for um, England, Scotland and Wales. Um, Any foods that are marketing or sold in Northern Ireland still come under EU legislation. So if you're, if you're working with a brand that's been marketed and, and sold in, in Northern Ireland, you need to go through EFSA still for the moment. Um, I'm, I'm sure at some stage it'll come into UK law, but for the moment, the GB, um, Nutrition and Health Claim Register, only applies for foods 
that have been sold and marketed in England, Scotland and Wales. As I say, for Northern Ireland, it's still the EU register, if that makes sense. Interesting. Okay. So I guess time will tell um, how these registers of approved claims evolve. Um, Can you explain a bit more about what types of communications are covered by this legislation? Okay. So in terms of EFSA and also what we call the H. Um, UK HCNCC claims. So in claims of, in terms of nutrition and health claims, um, all consumer, all branded communications targeting the consumer is covered by this legislation. So that includes packaging, websites, social media posts like Instagram, printed radio, television adverts, advertorials, everything. And I'm not just talking the written word, I'm talking about images like logos or graphs or pictures or even testimonials. All that is covered by the legislation. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Okay, that's that's really useful. And um, how is this relevant to, to dietitians working with brands, for example, Catherine? Oh, it's very relevant. So if dietitians are working with brands, whether they're working for a company or they're, whether they're working as a, a freelancer or a consultant, um, they need to be aware of the legislation because any communication um, about a brand that's been targeted at consumers, you can only talk about the health benefits or the nutrition benefits if they come from the approved list. So if they come from these registers of health and nutrition claims, you can talk about them. So, for example, you can talk about bones and calcium because that's on the list. You, can t- you can't talk about something like carotene because there isn't actually a definition for that on the list, on the register list. But you can talk about vitamin A. So you do need to be aware of the legislation, um, even though whatever you're writing can be scientifically accurate. If you're making a claim, be it nutrition, like the amount of a nutrient in a food, or about the function of a nutrient in the food. If it's not, if that claim is not on this list of approved claims, it's illegal to make those claims for that food if it's targeting uh, a consumer. And it's interesting, isn't it, how there are, um, you know, nutrients that have um, so much evidence behind them, yet they don't necessarily have an approved health or nutrition claim. I think one yeah. example, uh, did you say there's no probiotic claim approved at the moment? There's no probiotic claim at the moment, even though the evidence is very strong. So at the moment, you can't talk to the consumer about a probiotic and yogurt um, benefit. You can talk as a dietitian if you're developing communications that are targeting um, healthcare professionals. You can certainly talk about the science. But if the end target audience is the consumer, that claim doesn't exist. It hasn't been approved. The scientists working on a European level to date have not thought the evidence is strong enough. And in terms of what happens if a company breaches the legislation, um, just wondering what the sort of processes are if a company makes a claim that they're not allowed to make. To the guillotine, <laughs> if you make a claim that breaches the law, it's a criminal offence to break these, legis- these regulations. So companies can either have their hands slapped or have their products taken off shelf. They can be shamed by the media. It would be a PR disaster to break these legislators, these laws. You can end up paying huge fines and ultimately somebody can go to prison. So companies often come to nutritionists or dietitians for expertise in helping them to identify what health and nutrition claims they can make. So um, is this a skill that dietitians are taught during their degrees? Or if not, how do they go about upskilling in this area? No, this wouldn't necessarily be taught on a dietetic course, because at the end of the day, remember, the dietetic course is very much focusing for people to go into clinical setting. So um, in terms of understanding this legislation, this would be something you would have to kind of learn yourself. You'd either learn on the hoof if you go into a company. Um, There are some courses, and hopefully there will be more courses in the future. I know that the BDA is looking at a course. And maybe, you know, there is an opportunity for universities to develop a module 
on um, nutrition communication for consumers because that's very much a, a kind of a gap in the understanding for dietitians and nutritionists who want to go into the food industry because really, you really ought to know about this legislation. And when you understand it, it's fairly easy to use. You know, the more experienced you are, the, you know, the less scary it is to, to be aware of this legislation. Absolutely. Um, now, a big question, I suppose, perhaps for dietitians who are not used to health and nutrition claims, how do you know if you're making a health or nutrition claim and whether that falls under consumer communications? Okay, if your audience is consumer, you need to be aware of whether you're making a health or nutrition claim. And this is, you're talking about a brand at the end of the day. You're not just talking about general foods. It's not like a general healthy eating um, recommendation you're talking about. If you're talking about a specific brand, um, if your end user, if, if your target audience is a consumer, you need to know whether you're making a nutrition or a health claim. A health claim is a statement, a suggestion, or an implication that a brand has a beneficial property due to its nutrient profile. So as I say, it can be words, it can be a symbol, it can be a graph, it can be a picture. So for example, calcium is good for you. That's a, that's a health claim. Um, and an image of bones in your product, that would be an implied health claim. So that, that's a health claim. Um, the fact that you're talking about calcium, that's a nutrition claim. So if you want to talk about the nutrients in the food and say this is rich in or a source of, so it's high in vitamins, it's low in fat, it's high in fiber, those are all defined. And you need, to, you need to be aware of the register that explains to you what those definitions are. So for example, as I said before, to say something is low in fat, there's a definition. It must be 3% fat or less. If you want to say that your product or this brand is high in vitamin A or any vitamin, that brand has to have um, 30% of what we call the labeling RDA. So the reference nutrient it must have at least 30% reference nutrient for that vitamin according to, again, to the table, that will be very specific. Um, if you want to say something has a source of it, it has to be 15%. So it's all very much, you know, when you, when you know where to go for the information, it's all there, but you need to be aware that you can't, even though you know something is high in fibre, if it doesn't meet the 6% rule, it's not high in fibre legally, and you can't, you can't make that communication. Definitely. I think there's so much confusion around um, use of health and nutrition claims at the moment. And Catherine and I were having a conversation just before we started recording this episode. And I think we both agree, Catherine, it is such a grey area. And the legislation it, it is open to interpretation, isn't it? It is open to interpretation. And I think it's quite frustrating for dietitians and experts in nutrition to be told, oh, you can't say that, even though you know the evidence is there to support what you're saying. Because you are restricted by the legislation. You need to be aware of the legislation. Um, because, you know, what you're saying comes under this guidelines for health and nutrition claims. So there are what we call prohibitive claims. Um, so one claim that you can't make is when you talk about rate or amount of weight loss, those sort of claims aren't allowed for a, for a single food. They are allowed for a meal plan. So that's where the kind of the guidance and the interpretation of the law comes in. But it's really difficult to talk about weight loss or amount of weight loss when you're talking about a brand. And that's a real it's a really difficult area for a dietitian to be working or for any or any marketing communication program. Um, when you're talking about beers or alcohols, um, you cannot carry a health claim on any drink that has more than 1.2% alcohol. So that's the other prohibited um, area in terms of legislation. There is one area that's really very interesting to dietitians and causes a lot of people sleepless nights, I think. And that's, we were talking about this earlier, Harriet, which is all about whether dietitians can recommend a brand or not. And that does cause a lot of confusion. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that brings us on nicely, Catherine, to the recently published um, guidance from the Department of Health and Social Care. So actually, Catherine and I recorded this episode back um, during the first week of January. And the second week of January, some newly published or newly updated guidance came out on nutrition and health claims, guidance to compliance with the regulation. Now, Catherine has described this document as a game changer for dietitians working with brands. So I'm hoping, Catherine, it's a very long document and it's very confusing to read. So can you very briefly summarise essentially what the key takeaways are for dietitians working with brands? Yes, it is. It's a very ambiguous document. So this is called the guidance notes. So this is the um, document prepared by the government to give guidance on how to interpret the legislation, which is basically the EFSA legislation, which is now in the EU law, sorry, in UK law. Now, when we spoke before we actually recorded this, Harriet, you can remember we actually talked about EFSA basically saying, you know, dietitians and health professionals shouldn't be endorsing brands. It was it's prohibited. It was illegal. And it was a very grey area. Now, it's less grey under the, under the UK system now because of this guidance. So dietitians can recommend brands. That's the game changer. And that's really interesting. And this is really important because actually it shows that the government considers that experts in their fields like dietitians should be able to express their professional expertise and that the regulation on nutrition and health claims shouldn't seek to hinder this. So it's a real recognition that dietitians have a role in, in basically helping to educate the consumer to understand nutrition so that they can make healthier food choices. So as I say, dietitians can make recommendations for brands and say certain brands they, they recommend but it is still quite a grey area, as we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. And thank you very much for, for clarifying that newly published guidance. I think section 4.5, if anyone is interested in reading the document, is most relevant to health professionals. And it actually includes a couple of really useful case studies where it gives examples of what the guidance would consider to be a prohibited claim and also what they would consider to be um, authorised claims. So it's definitely worth a read. Now, Catherine, I just wondered if you can... Um, perhaps apply that information, the guidance, to some practical case studies, if you like? Yes, I think that's the easiest way to discuss it. So the question is, what rules do dietitians need to be aware of? Okay, in a nutshell, in Great Britain, so England, Scotland and Wales, because, because remember, Northern Ireland comes under EU legislation still. So in, the, in Great Britain, England, Scotland and Wales, dietitians can recommend a branded product but the big but is they cannot recommend a health claim on a product. And it, it really is ambiguous and it's really confusing. But if I give you examples, it feels ever so slightly less confusing, but it really is a gray area still. So as I say, the legislation is not black and white and the guidance still feels confusing, but it's, it feels less confusing than the EU guidelines. So I still think it's really exciting for dietitians. And this is how I would explain it. Dietitians can recommend a product if a health claim isn't being made at the same time. So you could say dietitians recommend brand Y, um, or you could say this product has been developed by dietitians. So that's the statement. You can make that statement in an ad. Now, what is not allowed is for a dietitian to recommend a product and then make a health claim at the same time about that product. So just to kind of give you an example, if you said, Dietitian X recommends supplement Y in an ad that includes a health claim for that supplement, for example, like calcium is good for you or calcium is good for your bones. That is not allowed. That's deemed a new 
unauthorized health claim. Because as you can see, there's two claims going there. The first one is dietitian recommends the supplement. And the second claim is calcium is good for your bones. So those are two claims. So that's considered illegal. Another example is dietitian X says calcium is needed for strong bones in an ad, including the product name of that supplement. So if you see if you see, you can see that there's a link there. The dietitian saying they recommend it, but they're also making the health claim. So this is considered illegal as the claim and the dietitian's recommended recommendation is linked by being in the same ad and therefore seen as an unauthorized claim. So the dietitian's making a health claim about the food, which according to the legislation is an unauthorized health claim. So it's prohibited. So it really is, it, is, it does sound so ambiguous, but I think just in a nutshell, what I'm saying is you make your claim that this is a food that you recommend, but you do not make a health claim that the food has a health benefit near to that claim you're making about your recommendation. Does that make sense, Harriet? Probably not. I think that makes sense. So if you're recommending a brand, you basically need to do that in a separate post to including a health claim. You can't put the two together in an Instagram post, for example. Yes, well, you certainly can't put them in the same sentence. And I I like to think you can't put it in the same breath. They need to be far apart. You need to make your recommendation. And then further in the copy, if it's a long copy, you can make the claim. But you cannot be seen. It cannot be seen from the consumer point of view that the dietitian is recommending this product because of the health claim that they've mentioned. They they can recommend it on themselves by saying it's good. And that's my, you know, my expertise says this is a good, you know, I recommend this product. But I cannot say this product is good because it's got calcium, which is good for your bones. Absolutely. I think you've you've explained that really clearly, Catherine. And I think as you've reiterated throughout this podcast, the the legislation is incredibly grey. And Mm. if dietitians are confused, I think it's probably best practice to consult with fellow dietitians who have experience of working on health and nutrition claims, such as yourself. Um, It's a good idea to get peer review, whether that's a blog post or a social media post, we're, we're, you know, it's a small profession. We're all out there to help each other. Yes. So I think, um, you know, if in doubt, ask for help. And I think it's all about interpretation of the legislation. And of course, the legislation is always better to be interpreted. So just have a good argument, understand why you're saying what you're saying and just have a good argument for why you've done that. <laughs> Definitely. That's really helpful tips, Catherine. Um, in terms of your top tips, if a healthcare professional is approached by a brand, are there any considerations that they need to have at the forefront of their mind in terms of... Yeah, I think, I think become au fait with the nutrition and health claims legislation. Look it up. It's, it's pretty user-friendly. The more times you use it, it's more, it's more user-friendly. Just be aware that nutrition claims are controlled um, and regulated, and so are health claims. Also, if you're going to recommend the brand, just be careful. Make sure you're not making a health claim when you make that recommendation. And that is it's very ambiguous, the legislation. It is difficult, but you just have to be very careful in that way. I think at the end of the day, it's all about context. And there was something that was said to me very early in my, my career. You know, the litmus test is, if you're working, if you're putting your name to consumer, and I'm, this, at the end of the day, this is consumer, consumer, consumer branded communications. So if, as a dietitian, if you're working consumer branded communications, God forbid the Daily Mail challenged your communication with your name on it and the brand on it. Would you be proud of what you've written? And would you be able to actually defend it? That's the litmus test. Can you defend what you've written? And it's no good saying, oh, the science says it's, it's okay. If the legislation says you can't use the science, you have to use these approved claims. There's no point saying, you know, oh, probiotic, I've, I've got all the evidence for probiotic and yogurts. It's not approved that claim. You cannot make that claim to a consumer. So that litmus test, as I say, is make sure whatever you write, 
you are proud of and you wouldn't be embarrassed if it was, if it was shown in the Daily Mail. <laughs> Brilliant. I think that's really good advice. You know, would you be able to stand up in, in front of a room of fellow dietitians and confidently support the, the statements that you've made? Um, okay, Catherine, I just have... Um, perhaps one more question for you, which is in terms of the, the overall dietetic profession, do you think that it needs to change at all in order to support dietitians working with the food industry? And if so, how? Well, I know that the BDA is looking at some guidance. Uh, they're developing some guidance for dietitians working in the food industry. And I think that's really welcome because I think that's fantastic. And the more guidance we can have, the better. And also that will help in terms of um, even helping the government give us better guidance on how dietitians endorse products. Um, it would be fantastic to have some sort of module in university training on, um, you know, working with the consumer with, with food industries. Um, and also just, I think, the more experience that dietitians get in the food industry, the more they're going to help each other. So, you know, the dietitians have an awful lot to offer in terms of helping the nation understand what they're eating and even if you're working for the food industry you know you have your code of conduct you code of practice and you know you abide by that and anything you write you know must be truthful consumer must always be protected but at the end of the day you know although the consumer does have a lot of information sometimes they don't have a lot of information there still is so much misinformation out there that dietitians can really play a role in helping consumers choose healthier foods Brilliant. And like you said, um, I think the BDA are releasing some guidance on this in the near future. There are also um, for professional forums and membership groups that you can join, such as nutritionists in industry, which bring together nutritionists and dietitians working in the food industry to support and collaborate with one another. Um, but it's great to hear, Catherine, from your perspective of how the profession needs to change in order to move forward. Um, just before we finish, Catherine, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I'd say good luck to all the dietitians working in the food industry. And, and, you know, if you get the opportunity to work in the food industry, it's fun. It's a creative area and it's a good way to use your science. And at the end of the day, remember, you are a health professional. You're a scientist. Um, so your credibility is very important and protect your credibility. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Catherine. We will, of course, link in the show notes to the guidance document that was published in January that we mentioned earlier in the episode. Thank you for joining us once again and our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon. Thank you.